0: welcome to cato audio for june 2022 i'm caleb brown in this month's offering chris edwards discusses the economic powerhouse that is home-based business the regulatory problems that many governments erect to stymie those businesses. Cato's Jennifer Shulp and Marta Belcher discuss the staggering amounts of consumer data to which government has easy access. And a new Cato Audio exclusive feature, a discussion with David Bowes about the rise of authoritarianism on the planet. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The United States is facing inflation that it hasn't seen in some 40 years. Uh, here to talk about that, Norbert Michel, Vice President and Director of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute and Scott Linsikum, Director of General Economics and the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. So, uh, Norbert, if you don't mind, uh, I'm going to start with you. We have seen a lot of price changes and tending toward the increase uh, with respect to the general economy. So when people see inflation in the wild, and I am 45 years old, I've never seen anything like this, or at least it didn't happen within my memory, how ought we to distinguish inflation from just individual price increases? That's that's a great question. If we're talking about inflation,
1: technically what we're talking about is the rate that the overall consumer price level increases. So the idea is we can have some sort of uh, measure for the overall level of spending that we have, and then we can measure consumer goods, on consumer, consumer goods. And then inflation is the rate at which that is going up. So if the overall sort of... Uh, expenditures that we have as consumers increases by five percent every year, then the rate of
0: inflation is five percent. So, Scott, some industries are going to be leading inflation and others will be sort of lagging inflation. So where have we seen the price increases that have sort of led this inflation?
2: right so so last year certainly uh the uh general increase in prices was primarily concentrated in goods uh, particularly durable goods um this makes a lot of sense um people were flush with cash and as, as economies reopened uh and uh but they were still kind of stuck in their homes uh, or at least used to being stuck in their homes, and so uh, the consumption people were buying a lot of stuff. Um, they were particularly buying, you know, furniture, for example, used cars, um, and so there were really substantial price increases in 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 goods, um, which also contributed. By the way, to some some th- issues at the ports and all of that kind of stuff. But meanwhile, services, um, last year at least were were still pretty muted, the price increases there. Um, in fact, in some areas, um, we were actually seeing price declines and things like hotel rooms and and airfare and the rest. Now, since uh really starting a little bit last year and certainly into this year, October, we're November th- a shift. And you know, so again, as Norbert mentioned, we're talking about a general price increase. So prices are still going up like they were last year overall, but the composition has changed. Now people are, um, it's it's more in services, particularly in rents and housing, um, but also some of those things that last year were depressed, um, airfare, hotels are, are going up. Meanwhile, a lot of the goods pressure we saw last year um, has dissipated. Uh, in fact, we actually saw a slight decline in used car prices, uh, either last month or the month before, um, and that uh, I think is a really great indicator of how again inflation is all prices. You can't just look at the price of used cars and go, "Aha, uh, we, we're past the inflation," because it's it's again it's everything
0: over, overall. Uh, so if you watch Bloomberg, and I watch too much Bloomberg. Um... And there was a debate a few months ago. This was uh, Scott, you and I, I think probably already discussed this, but the debate was, well, is this transitory or transitory plus transitory plus three months? Uh, Is it episodic inflation? Is it is are we once we get through this little hump of inflation, are we going to get back to it? Or is this something that is going to be uh, taking on a life of its own? in a sense. And that debate was very hotly discussed for months. Uh, and where where should we be right now?
2: Um, well, look, if, if, if the debate, uh, uh, some of the blame should really rest, I think, with the Fed itself. I mean, if you listened to the Fed last year, um, it, even into September, uh, Chairman Jerome Powell was out there saying, trans- "This was all transitory. This was all going to subside. Everything was going to be okay." Um, and so that's and and then uh, if you hang out on Econ Twitter, as unfortunately I do, uh, I mean it was very much a, a a very robust debate last year. The the team transitory versus team persistent, or whatever you want to call it, um, with the the former saying, "This is this is just in used cars. This is just in these little weird wonky things that are going to." Uh, It's going to basically resolve itself um, in the next few months. Another side, which I think took it a little too far, was that, no, look, we've had pretty radical monetary and fiscal policy combined with a bunch of supply side stuff. um, And this has a chance of feeding on itself and that it actually creates a much more persistent inflationary pressures as consumers and uh, workers start to expect higher inflation. Um, you can have things ca- kind of getting out of out of control. Um, so who's winning? Well, it, it depends because Team Transitory has now gone from saying three months to saying, well, no, I mean, it could be a couple of years of this. That's what we meant overall, which is definitely not what they meant overall. Um so and but I I think it's also a bit unhelpful because you know we now have had the the fed step in we've had a lot of changes to fiscal policy you know we had massive fiscal stimulus last year supply side stuff is kind of resolving itself um so it the debate I think at this point has gotten somewhat uh, useless um because uh we're we're at a far different policy point than than we were last year but I think that the the folks that were saying this wasn't transitory I think probably if you had to win simply because it lasted a lot longer.
0: Uh Norbert uh related to that uh w- I'm going to take you back to 2008.
3: Mm-hmm. And
0: when we had a financial meltdown on Wall Street, yep. large <laughs> at the time, one of the largest ever uh fiscal and monetary adjustments to try to ease that uh the the burden of that the, the financial shakeup that was going on, and inflation didn't really do anything. That's right. and so uh, we, what it, do what do we it, take away from that versus now?
1: <laughs> well <laughs> those those episodes are both large shocks, uh, so there is that similarity. Uh, but there are some big differences uh along with that, the Fed has changed their operating framework um, and they did that in eight and in eight when they changed their operating framework, they set up an interest on reserve framework where they started paying interest on reserves so the the basic way of implementing monetary policy became comp- c- c- became very different, and without getting into all the weeds um when when they did that the the basic sort of uh connection between fed purchases which increase bank reserves and overall money growth changed dramatically that's you know so that that's the sort of uh standard why right and now when we fast forward to now to the covid pandemic well we still have that framework in place so things are still a little different Um, And believe it or not, a lot of people don't still don't understand what happened with that framework. But now this episode, you have uh, something very different. You have a massive government enforced or government induced drop in demand and supply really uh, followed by a dramatic increase in demand snap where it's not back. um, And a lot of those and, and a lot of that government-induced shutdown stuff sort of mess up supply chains, um, as the pandemic did itself. So you had really large swings in output um, against the backdrop of all kinds of other economic problems, along with massive fiscal uh, and monetary support. And there's really nothing in the historical record that compares to it. So, you know, people want to look for uh You know, sort of examples of well, and and say things like, "Well, this is the worst it's been since 1980, whatever." And that's, you know, all that's true, but it's it's also true that that there's
0: no uh, no reason to think that it wouldn't be worse um, because of what we did. And uh, notably, in the last year and a half or so, as you alluded to, a a large increase relative to March of 2020. In That's right. economic activity, the cash positions of households uh, was m- quite a bit better for uh, a That's lot right. of households in the United States, and they were looking to spend. That's right.
1: We had a big demand side shock. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's really hard to predict exactly when that that swing is going to take place. But it's not hard to predict that if you give people several thousand dollars <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, that they didn't have before, that eventually they're going to spend it. So, um, and a lot of people said at the time that the support that we were giving uh, federally was too large relative to the the, the, the decrease and the shock. Um, and it was too open-ended. And there were, there were too little controls. And it, I, I think those were valid criticisms. And the
0: large swing in demand probably supports that. Uh, one thing, Scott, that I, I, I really think we ought to note about inflation generally is that some people benefit enormously and others uh, it's all downside and so if you had a a whole bunch of used cars sitting around it in your house or you were planning to put your house on the market uh, somewhere in the last uh, year or so uh wow you 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 might you might have made out like a bandit Uh, Whereas other industries, other uh, people, lower income people especially, have been seeing their wages increase uh, while inflation outstrips their wage increase.
2: Right. And, you know, I think that you really hit on the, the last part is 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 critically important. Um, you know, certainly we've seen pretty rapid wage growth over the last year or so, and you'll see a lot of folks defending either the Biden administration and and this fiscal stimulus and the Fed and the rest, and they'll say, "Aha! See, this is fine." Uh, the problem, of course, is that there are especially people on fixed incomes um, that aren't seeing any of that wage growth, or people who really like their jobs and uh, aren't uh, wanting to move jobs because it's really in job switching, getting new job where you're going to see uh those wage gains. So those folks um are are not seeing any of the wage benefits, but they're, of course, seeing higher prices. And uh, that's particularly, again, important on the lower side of the income scale, because these are the folks that they can't uh, avoid their everyday purchases, right? These are, you know, when it's basic necessities like food and shelter and clothing and the rest, and you're seeing substantial price increases there, they can't say, okay, well, I'm going to stop buying food. Um, now, for wealthier people, those necessities are a far smaller part of their everyday budgets, and they can pick and choose how they allocate the rest of their budgets, and thus, you know, they're 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 less affected. You know, maybe I, I actually know some people who went on a pretty pretty awesome vacations last year for dirt cheap because the hotels were half empty, Disney World was totally empty, the uh, flights were dirt cheap, um, and so for them, I mean, this is this is salad days, right? And and so it really is a very uh, disparate impact um, that, and and important to note that you know there were a lot of losers
0: and and certainly some winners too. Uh, I went to Disney World last fall, and I can report that it was uh, dead. And (laughs) I would I would add awesome. Um, So (laughs) so, uh, with respect to uh, the demand side, you know, uh, if we take Milton Friedman seriously. Uh, Inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon, but there are things that can be done with the uh, (laughs) more accountable parts of the government uh, that simply haven't been done. That's Um, right. So with respect to supply, what can we say? Uh, With respect to supply? Sure. Well— with respect to supply of of well, I'm sorry of the money or just supply. Aggregate? Well, my, my apologies. Uh, it, it, in terms of this being a demand versus a supply side issue, ah, we've okay. we've had uh, you know not not necessarily a, yeah. uh, an, over a large shrinkage of uh, the products available, but certainly right. it's not growing rapidly to eat up all that money that's sloshing around in the economy.
1: So so, we have both we have a demand and supply problem, and unfortunately um it's not always easy to pick out and parse out exactly how much of of which is is driving the problem. Uh, but we do know that the economy has started growing faster or at the the sort of projected real growth path that we had prior to the pandemic so so that's an indication that the supply side stuff is at the very least uh, slacking off and getting better and that what's driving the inflation is starting to shift to more to the demand side. Um, and from a policy perspective, what that suggests is, okay, you have to pair back. You have to start tightening and, and you sure as heck shouldn't start, uh, handing out more on the fiscal side, you know, in terms of, of aid, if you want to call it aid, uh, <laughs> but you should stop sending checks to people. <laughs> um, so that's,
0: that's kind of where we are now. Okay, Scott, with respect to sending checks to people uh, and, let's say, relieving them of certain obligations that they contractually agreed to, um, what can Congress and the president do around the, on the margins to try to mitigate the inflation that we have seen.
2: Well, right. And, and they first like like Norbert mentioned and like you mentioned, first thing they need to do is stop just giving people money. Um, the second thing is uh, they need to stop uh, uh, waiving people's debt obligations as well. Uh, you know, student loan forgiveness, for example, uh, could be moderate. It's like kind of like giving people money um, because suddenly instead of paying down debt, People now have an extra couple hundred bucks every month that that they can then go spend in the real economy whatever you're calling it so that's that's the first place but the second thing is look there still are supply side restrictions um and to the to the extent that politicians can act and actually make things better and just you know not just only sit on their hands um look there are there are some things that that they can do you know the the, the biggest and most obvious one is is the tariffs that are in place um you know president biden Can with the stroke of a pen eliminate a lot of tariffs um, that President Trump put in place? Tariffs that have been shown to increase prices, um, and that according to some new analysis, that if they were removed, uh, would save American families a few few hundred bucks, about eight hundred dollars a year. Now, this isn't going to change the overall general price level, all those inflationary stuff, and it it certainly is. um, I would agree. You know, a demand side, you know, the Fed needs to act type situation. But in terms of things that that the political class could do, that's
0: just an obvious, the tariffs are just an obvious place to start. So there is no indication that, uh, at least on the fiscal side, that there will be any alleviation of tariffs or uh, a reduction in, what, just spending. Federal right. spending.
2: and 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 in fact the, the the really unfortunate thing is that we're actually seeing in congress and in recent legislation supply side restrictions increasing um for example there are these new buy american rules in the infrastructure bill that um will in specific which are specifically intended to increase costs by requiring uh, contractors to use American-made materials, American-made steel, and that kind of stuff. And the Biden administration just a couple of days ago admitted that these Buy American restrictions were a problem because they waived them for the next few months um, until conveniently right after the election, right? Um, meanwhile, they, the Biden administration has... Um, uh, reinstituted an old rule uh, related to Davis-Bacon legislation, and this is construction um, for construction labor. Um, it was a rule that was implemented during the Reagan administration, particularly, again, to tamp down inflation by lowering the, the wages that were required to be paid for federal procurement, federal projects. Uh, the Biden administration uh, has decided they want to get rid of that anti-inflationary policy back then, and again, by pumping up salaries um, for, for federal uh procurement now that again, uh you know these are not the big drivers of inflation, but uh it's just this kind of death by a thousand cuts that's you know making things a little worse
0: to say nothing of student debt relief, right so uh the political responses here have been sort of all over the map, and I guess in the in the early going of this inflationary. Episode, however long this episode is, it might be a, one of those season finale, extra long episodes. Um, we, it, it's really run the gamut, and especially from uh, Democrats whose political fortunes may be on the line uh, this November. A lot of it was uh, assigning blame, where perhaps it. Should not have been assigned, and I want to treat this very carefully because at first blush, if you see certain industries that have seen uh, outsized profits in a in a short time period, and it it appears that these companies are are doing quite well, and that is that has been the focus for a lot of Democrats early going on in this inflation. Some of them are still uh, taking that uh, focus, but what? do we miss if we're, if we're focusing just on the specific industries or specific companies that are seeing uh, extra normal profits? Well, we miss the big picture.
1: Uh, you know, the, you're, you're always going to have in, in, in any business, in, in any long-term pattern business cycles where companies are going to do better or worse. And inflation tends to drive up the retail price quicker uh, then, there, then a company's cost uh, cost of goods sold because those a lot of those goods were already purchased uh, before the inflation took hold. So it's a temporary boost, generally speaking. Um, and therefore, if you, on top of whatever problems people are having, you clamp down on the company and increase their cost, then you're going to increase the prices of the consumer's pay down the road. Yeah. So it, it's not, a solution for inflation. And it certainly isn't the company's fault, uh, you know, that that inflation took off after they had already purchased all the things that they're selling. Uh, so it's a silly policy.
2: Right. And just to add to what Norbert said, uh, you know, it seems that uh, everybody on this corporate greed uh blame game um, really seems to forget that uh, these corporations uh, weren't uh, exercising their market power just right before the pandemic right it's it's as if they they you know the oil companies when oil went negative um were were i guess just being really generous back then and then now they've decided they've turned on the old greedometer and uh and you know they're going to they're going to you know just get extra profits all of a sudden you know that not, but and the other thing though is that everybody seems to forget that there's a there's two parties to to a transaction there's the seller that is you know reaping these windfall profits supposedly and also the buyer and price increases really only work when you have willing buyers buyers willing to buy and and that again stems from a lot of this demand side stimulus and these people being flush with cash so uh Yes, you know, uh, corporations were allowed to raise prices. Yes, profits went up, particularly in certain areas, um, grocery stores, for example. Um, But they were able to raise prices because various policies had consumers flush with cash and and willing to pay those prices. And so, yeah, they couldn't get away with any of this if if consumers had balked. and then the last thing, of course, is that a lot of this profit talk totally ignores that these very same companies are facing higher costs, higher materials costs, higher labor costs in this inflationary environment. Um, and when you actually look at profit margins, you know, again, going back to grocery stores, the margins themselves are actually pretty much in line with uh, past uh, margins. Um, not to mention now this year, uh, earnings reports are all in the toilet. So, um, you know, it's it's a pretty silly excuse once you get into the weeds.
1: Norbert, I was going to say, and it's similar to the the price increases that we see. Everybody freaks out and and right, rightfully so to some extent. But at the same time, everybody forgets that right before the increase, there was a decrease. And so, you know, it, it's it, I know that nobody wants to hear, OK, let's let's take a step back and let's be calm and let's let these things work out. But to some extent, that's very
0: important to do, especially at the level of Congress. All right. We're going to leave it there. Norbert Michel, vice president and director of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives and Scott Lincecum, director of General Economics and the Herbert H. People Center for Trade Policy Studies. You can follow all of our discussions about inflation. And other economic phenomena at our website, cato.org. About half the businesses in the U.S. are based in homes. So, why do local governments actively work against them? Chris Edwards explains on the Cato Daily
4: Podcast. Home-based businesses are hugely important to the U.S. economy. America has about 30 million businesses, and remarkably, about half of them, about 15 million, are based in the home. Everyone from accountants to wedding planners to contractors to yoga teachers uh, to daycare providers and home food producers uh, operate their businesses uh, out of their homes. Uh, So this is hugely important to the economy. There's many lifestyle uh, and economic advantages to home businesses. The problem is that a lot of local governments impose excessive zoning rules that restrict home-based businesses. And I think this really undercuts the economy.
0: If you go to Google Maps and start uh, searching for things in your neighborhood, inevitably, at least in my experience, you will find one of those little pin drops in a house in a neighborhood and it will list be listed as a business. How do local governments uh, stand in the way of that? Or how do they make it harder?
4: Well, if you wind the clock back to the mid-20th century, many local governments across America, they, they impose strict so-called Euclidean um, zoning rules, uh, strictly separating out commercial, residential, and industrial uses of land. But those strict uh, divisions don't make sense anymore in the modern economy. I mean, many people want to uh, work out of their home, and they're able to now with because of the computers and the internet and other technological advances. Uh, our society's changed in a lot of other uh, ways. Uh, most women work now, and there's often issues. Uh, people may want to work in their home and set up home businesses, because of uh, child care issues, people uh, may have elderly folks at home they need to uh, care for. There's a lot of advantages to running businesses out of your home, but governments have uh, often strictly banned uh, any business activity out of their home except for the most Uh, you know, the least uh, impact, such as, say, accounting services. So, for example, cities ban um, uh, customers from driving up and uh, visiting homes for business purposes. They restrict the square foot in your house, the the houses that are allowed to be used uh, for businesses. They restrict, uh, you know, parking of uh, business-oriented trucks in residential neighbourhoods. There's all these restrictions that I think, uh, you know, unfairly uh, infringe on an individual's right to own their property and to use their property as they see fit. And you mentioned if half of American businesses don't have a
0: storefront or, uh, you know, regular piece of property that is used exclusively for that purpose, you've got to think that for a lot of small businesses, overhead. Uh, being able to eliminate that chunk of overhead could be a huge savings to a business that's just getting started.
4: That's right. I mean, uh, for individuals, there's lifestyle reasons why you might want to run your business out of your home. So, for example, uh, caring for young children. But there's also big economic uh, advantages. I mean, starting businesses is very high risk. A lot of entre- entrepreneurs are young. They don't have a lot of capital. But if you can start a business in your home to test out an idea, to test out a product uh, you can save a lot of money uh, than having to rent office space. Or let's say you're starting a food business, you'd have to uh, rent space at a commercial kitchen, which can be very expensive. Uh, if you think about a lot of uh, uh, great American businesses, Amazon started in Jeff Bezos' garage in Seattle. Uh, Steve Jobs started Apple in his garage. Hewlett Packard started in a garage uh, in Silicon Valley. So uh Home businesses are not only important because they add a lot of economic benefit to local economies, but some of these home businesses end up growing uh, to be be large corporations that hire uh, hundreds uh, of thousands, tens of thousands of Americans. So, you know, uh, we don't want local governments standing in the way of this uh, economically beneficial activity, uh, especially these days, because the Internet provides so many opportunities for people to start businesses in the home. You mentioned uh, commercial kitchens for food
0: production. You know, you can rent space in sort of a communal uh, commercial kitchen sometimes, but for a lot of uh, businesses, that might not make a lot of sense. But for food production, I think there is a reasonable concern that there might be foodborne illnesses or uh, people who are not following guidelines for food safety uh, that. Makes sense, and following those guidelines generally a good thing. Uh, What what's your response to that?
4: Well, it's true that there is a balance uh, of safety when you're talking about uh, home uh, home food production, and you know, interestingly, the states uh, vary uh, extremely widely in their rules. Some states, like New Jersey, ban essentially all home food production, including even baked products. So you couldn't, for example, in New Jersey, start a business making wedding cakes for people or anything like that. On the other hand, you have states that have passed food freedom laws like Wyoming, where you can essentially uh, uh produce and sell from your home uh any product uh in Wyoming except for meat product. There's usually a and and properly concern with regard to meat production in the home and items that need to be refrigerated, but there's a huge amount of uh products, chocolates. And candies, and jams, and fruit pies, and uh, baked goods, and canned goods, which can be safely uh, made in the home. Uh, but many states, up until recently, have banned this home food production, and I think that's that's really backwards. I think that a lot of people uh, want to get into food entrepreneurship uh, through their home, and a lot of people want to buy these products. So government should try to facilitate this activity with reasonable regulations. They shouldn't outright ban it, as they have done in numerous states.
0: In terms of governments that maybe are serious about allowing their residents, their citizenry to uh, leverage their homes for the purpose of starting a business um what's the quickest way to make it easier for that to happen?
4: Well, local governments need to uh, review their uh review their regulations oftentimes they make it more difficult for people to start businesses in their homes and outside of their homes. That doesn't make sense oftentimes uh local governments have more restrictive rules to prevent externalities from businesses than they do from non-business activities in neighborhoods. In other words, um, if, uh, for, uh, people who live in suburban neighborhoods, You can have parties. People can come to your party and park their cars um, occasionally. You can have loud noise for a certain time during the day, but not later at night. So there's some externalities are allowed, uh, but not, you know, there are reasonable regulations. Oftentimes, though, the same local governments completely ban, say, you know, parking for business activities in residential neighborhoods, or they'll completely ban any kind of noise and this sort of thing. So you know, there should be at least equal rules on externalities between business and non-business purposes in local neighborhoods. Uh, one thing that some state governments have stepped in now when they see local governments being too restrictive. A good example here is uh, local daycares. A couple decades ago, daycares were generally banned abandoned uh, homes in most American cities. Now they're generally allowed. And uh, there's about two dozen states that have passed state level rules that um, preempt local governments from completely banning daycares in uh, suburban neighborhoods, residential neighborhoods, which is reasonable. I mean, a huge demand for daycares, costs are very high, as anyone who has uh, young children uh, knows. So allowing, uh, under reasonable uh, limitations, uh, home-based daycares makes a lot of sense for the economy uh, today.
0: With respect to food specifically, if you're prohibited from engaging in this kind of business at your home, one, you're probably not going to file the relevant paperwork to actually open the business. And two, if you're actively avoiding the state, you might be also actively be avoiding those uh, perfectly reasonable protocols for uh, protecting your customers from an uh, illness related to the food.
4: You're exactly right here, Caleb. That if if the government's restrictions uh are are too uh, over the top, then people simply go underground, and we see this in all types of areas in the economy. Of course, with you know marijuana and other sorts of uh, drugs that are traditionally been illegal, you make the rules too stringently, the industry simply goes underground. It's the same with home food production then when industry uh goes underground then there's there's uh less of a uh a, a ability for government to check on safety uh you know businesses end up you know avoiding tax rules and that sort of thing too so it is of general benefit it's good for everyone if governments have reasonable and minimal regulations on home based businesses uh so that home based businesses aren't underground so that they are out in public and people can see how they operate
0: Chris Edwards is Director of Tax Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. The digitalization of financial services has made banking and trading more convenient than ever. The laws that were written before the digital era now collect untold amounts of consumer data to which the government has easy and often unfettered access. At a recent event, Cato's Jennifer Shulp discusses the problem with Marta Belcher, president of the Filecoin Foundation.
5: I'd like to start by just talking a little bit about um, financial surveillance, in particular, Um, And how that has come about um, with regards to the Fourth Amendment. So, you know, the Fourth Amendment really balances the legitimate interests of law enforcement with the civil liberties interests of citizens by requiring the government to get a warrant before conducting searches. Um, and requiring people to turn over information about financial transactions to the government by default with no warrant or probable cause is in my view unconstitutional mass surveillance. Yet somehow we've reached a place where that is the norm. And I think a lot of people don't even question the idea that uh, financial data is turned over to the government en mass in, in a warrantless way. And so how is it that the government is able to do that? Um, And the answer is uh, the third-party doctrine. Um, And in in particular, with regards to financial uh, data, um, the reason is uh, that uh, uh, the, under a, a Supreme Court case from the 1970s, US v. Miller, there's this idea that if people have turned over their financial information to a third party, in that case a bank, then they've lost their reasonable expectation of privacy uh, in that data. And so under the third party doctrine, you have this mass, effectively, mass surveillance program. Um, And the uh, amount of data that gets turned over to the government, uh, the amount of financial data that gets turned over to the government under the Bank Secrecy Act uh, and others is is really astounding. Um, I actually think, though, that if there were a challenge to the financial surveillance that's happening today, uh, if it actually went all the way up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court might actually uh, take a different view. Uh, So the reason that I think that is a a couple of different things. First of all, in the decades since Miller, the Supreme Court has really issued some really strong pro-privacy decisions that have been chipping away at the third party doctrine um, in the digital world. So, for example, um, the Supreme Court held in Carpenter that law enforcement has to get a warrant to obtain cell phone location information, even when that information is held by third parties. Uh, Another reason is that Miller was an as-applied challenge to the Bank Secrecy Act, meaning that in making its decision, the Supreme Court was really narrowly considering only how the Bank Secrecy Act was implemented at that time, not whether the entire statute is unconstitutional in light of how it could be implemented. And in the decades since Miller, the amount of financial uh, surveillance has just drastically, drastically expanded. And then I think uh, most importantly, the the amount of information that you could glean from bank data in the 1970s is just a world away from the intimate window into a person's life that can be provided by financial data today. Digital uh, financial transactions are are deeply personal and revealing. Um, And like the location records in Carpenter, these financial records can reveal your your family relationships, your political leanings, uh, your profession, your religious associations. And this is just completely different than the world in the 1970s. And I think that that is something that that the Supreme Court has recognized. Um, So, you know, just to to summarize, I really think uh, the Supreme Court now would potentially come to a different decision uh, in this financial, if the financial surveillance of today's system were challenged.
3: Privacy can mean a number of things in both practice and in theory. And I know it's a bit of a philosophical question, um, but we'll start, Marta, what do you mean when you're talking about privacy, and why should we want to protect it? and i'll I'll tack on to that. What do you say to someone who claims that that this concern with privacy is really only a concern for people that are looking to hide things from the law?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say a couple of things. Um, I think, uh, I'm going to shamelessly uh, I'm going to shamelessly quote uh, Zuka Wilcox, who is the uh, founder of Zcash, uh, who who says that privacy isn't secrecy, that that's a misconception. Privacy is consent. Privacy is giving your consent for your information to be given to to particular people or institutions. Um, And I think that's like a really fantastic uh, way of thinking about privacy in a different way. Um, But I would say, you know, even to the extent that privacy is about secrecy or anonymity, I think there's this idea, this misconception that anonymity is bad and that tools that enhance privacy enable crime. Uh, And privacy and anonymity are not bad and they're not illegal. In fact, they're essential for civil liberties. And that's especially true for financial transactions. Um, You know, I always think about uh, these pictures that I saw from the Hong Kong protests, which showed these really long lines at subway stations as pro-democracy protesters were waiting to purchase their tickets with cash so that their electronic purchases wouldn't place them at the scene of the protest. And so for me, that really underscores that the importance of anonymous transactions for civil liberties. Um, And for me, one of the reasons I've been so interested in in the cryptocurrency space um, and one of the things that I've really been fighting for in the cryptocurrency space is that cryptocurrency is important for civil liberties precisely because it can import the anonymity of cash into the online world. And that's a feature, not a bug.
3: When crypto was born... So when we're talking, you know, a decade plus ago now, these were transactions that were able to take place kind of outside the government's eye, Um, peer to peer, little to no government involvement at all. But what we've seen over the past several years, not surprisingly, is the interest in the U.S. and other governments getting involved in the regulation in this space. That is a whole big question on its own. But what I'd like to talk specifically about is adding crypto platforms to the BSA and anti-money laundering requirements, adding digital assets to these other surveillance systems that are in place the tax reporting surveillance system uh, say marta you've recently written on um, adding the adding digital assets to a portion of the tax code that requires businesses to report more than ten thousand dollars in a cash transaction to the government and i'd just like to talk a little bit about if that raises any different issues or just heightens the same issues that we have with kind of the broad-based surveillance that is potentially problematic here? And actually, I'd like to start with Marta, because I know I know you've written in this space and would love to hear your thoughts.
5: Yeah. So I think the first thing I would say is, is big picture. I think another misconception in this space is that um, cryptocurrency is unregulated and that it's the Wild West. So, the on ramps and the off ramps where people are buying and selling and custodying crypto. Are heavily regulated, so these on ramps and off ramps are chartered banks, or their trust companies, or their state-licensed money transmitters, and they have all sorts of requirements. They post bonds, they open their doors for yearly inspections, um, they're registering with FinCEN, they're complying with the Bank Secrecy Act, they're doing KYC, they're sharing details of sus- suspicious transactions. So, so all of that um, is is really happening at. The choke points at the on ramps and the off ramps at these at these exchanges. Um, so I think that's sort of um, point number one. I think point number two is um, one of the things that we've seen a lot of recently, and you know, including um, as as you mentioned, um, you know, what I've written about um, is you've seen uh, an expansion to not only having surveillance happen at these choke points at the on-ramps and off-ramps, but also expanding even further beyond that to to do surveillance in a way that is even broader, that actually requires participants in the network to collect identity details of the people that they're transacting with, and then somehow securely handle that information and then turn that information over to the government. And in some cases, with some of these proposals, um, potentially, if they don't do that, uh, face criminal penalties. Um, And so I think um, this is a this is a, a, you know, whatever you think of the existing uh, financial regulation and surveillance um, which, again, I already think is, is unconstitutional. The, the proposals that we've seen recently have expanded that even further, and I think are, cre- are, are creating systems that um, require participants to collect information in a way that's just not workable, and in a way that is a further intrusion on, on, uh, on privacy and, and uh, further expand surveillance.
0: Marta Belcher is president of the Filecoin Foundation. Jennifer Schulp is director of financial regulation studies at the Cato Institute. Introducing a new feature this month on Cato Audio, a discussion of important issues of interest to folks with a focus on liberty. This month, I spoke with Cato's newly minted, distinguished senior fellow, David Bowes, about the rise of authoritarianism on planet Earth. Before we get into the meat of this, what
6: do you understand liberalism to be? Liberalism, I would say, um, is... Uh, broad principles of the way society and government should operate that includes equality of rights, the rule of law, democracy, constitutional government, civil liberties, private property, a market economy, pluralism, free speech, freedom of religion, etc. all of which are important, and that's a lot of ideas. But somewhat more basic than the political issues that we debate from day to day, whether that's the welfare state or taxes or gay marriage or the drug war, all of those things can be argued about within a liberal society. But we talk, when we talk about liberalism, the thing that
0: comes to my mind is tolerance.
6: Yes, that's right. But I think all these other things are important. Having a constitutional government based on the rule of law, having governing institutions that are not political operatives but are neutral within the political system, all of that sort of thing is important too. So tolerance, yes, and that gets into freedom of speech and racial equality and equality for all people, all of those things. But these other principles of Uh, rule of law and democracy are also part of it. So where,
0: uh, I, I suppose... Where do you trace the beginnings of the rise of illiberalism, both uh, in the United States and abroad?
6: Well, obviously, in some sense, there was a lot of illiberalism before liberalism ever came along. I mean, there were autocracies and military dictatorships and what they used to call oriental despotism and so on. But in our modern liberal world, we have certainly had illiberal systems uh, behind the Iron Curtain, Russia, China, and so on. Um, We had illiberal Nazi uh, Germany. Uh, But I think within the last maybe 30 years, maybe less than that, um, we've started seeing a rise of illiberalism in various countries around the world and maybe inspired by different conditions, but a a recent phenomenon that I think has accelerated within the past decade. Where do you
0: trace i guess the most recent spike or rise in illiberalism in the united states and uh, to the extent that these people can be identified as a group
6: uh what do they believe Uh, It seems to me that for a long time, for most of my life, certainly my political awareness, most of American politics was divided between what I would call sort of Buckley-Reagan conservatives who said they were for small government and free enterprise, but they were also socially conservative. They supported the drug war. Uh, They were not so good initially on civil rights. Later, they were not so good on gay rights, things like that. And they favored a hawkish foreign policy that I think is dangerous. And then on the other side, the sort of FDR Are LBJ Democrats who were maybe a a little better on civil rights and and an open, tolerant society, but uh, favored a big welfare state. But both of those groups, you can sort of say, are within the liberal paradigm. So what I think we're seeing over the past decade is, frankly, a lot of it coming from Donald Trump, who campaigned for president, not as a supporter of small government or free markets, but a nativist appeal um, that singled out groups like Mexicans and Muslims as the enemy, uh, talked about real Americans, that, that he represented the real America. And then there's all these people who aren't the real America. And then On the left, I think instead of a response of saying, boy, that is a bad platform and most Americans are going to disagree with it. So all we have to be is like normal and we can get 60 percent of the vote against this guy. They moved to the left and they started talking about socialism and they started this identity politics where they want to drive people out of public life, drive people out of their jobs if they accidentally use the wrong term for an identity group or they say something that we used to call politically incorrect and and now we say it's not woke. So I think There's a growing hostility to tolerance and pluralism and free speech on the left that we're now seeing on the right as well. I mean, look, look what Governor DeSantis is doing in Florida to Disney. Disney disagreed with his bill about schools and what they can say about gay and trans people. And. So he wants to use the power of government to punish the Disney corporation. Now, I think you can reasonably take either side on that bill and you can reasonably take either side on whether Disney should get copyright extensions and whether the political organization of Disney World makes sense. Those are all legitimate issues. But the idea of using the power of government to punish people who have ideas you don't like that's an idea we're seeing on both left and right, and it is a profoundly illiberal idea. Fortunately, it's also in violation of the First Amendment, and so a lot of the things both left and right would like to do to their enemies, I believe the courts will not allow them to do. I see,
0: uh, you know, I'm unfortunately a Twitter person, which uh, I have made no, I have made no bones about, uh, with respect to uh, the shame I take in being a an active participant on Twitter. But, you know, to what extent do you see this as being largely a phenomenon of extreme, the the, the, the extremely partisan activist groups who are uh, in control of large megaphones versus the median voter and 60 percent around the median voter?
6: Well, I think that's right. I think uh, both parties have fallen into catering to their Twitter base more than they realize. The Democrats thought in 2020 that Bernie Sanders or AOC was, you know, the leader of the Democratic Party. And then it turned out when Democrats actually voted, they voted for Joe Biden, who was kind of the least woke and least leftist of the candidates running for president. Um, And similarly, on the Republican side, there is this MAGA megaphone that is very loud. But when you go out and ask actual Americans what they think about various issues, and right now one of them is abortion, we can see among the politicians and the Twitterati that there are two extreme positions on abortion. But if you look at the actual polls and if you give people more than two choices, you find that an awful lot of Americans say, I think abortion should be illegal except with exceptions, or I think abortion should be legal, but not not the whole way, maybe in the first trimester, that sort of thing. So there's a huge middle on that issue that isn't being heard in the debates in Washington and on Twitter. And I think that's true of a lot of other issues as well. So to the extent that there is this broad
0: middle, putting together a coalition of people who will marginalize the extremes here, people who we hope uh, represent the values of liberalism, that itself seems like a pretty daunting
6: task as well. It is. And in a sense, it's always been difficult to hold that coalition together because you always have demagogues promising everything people might want, demagogues scapegoating some enemy. And this is this is one of the things about populism and illiberalism is that there's always an enemy. It's I represent the people and the people who aren't the people, they, they, may, be, they may be the rich, they may be the 1%, they may be the Jews, they may be in, in other countries, sometimes they're the Americans or the pro-Americans, um, the homosexuals. I think some years ago, Ago, and, and I'm getting away from I think your question was about America. But some years ago, I noticed Hugo Chavez was attacking his opponent in the presidential race. And if you read all the clips, you notice that, among other things, he called his opponent homosexual Jewish bourgeois and American, and those are all the staples of illiberal rhetoric, especially around the world. Liberals are always tarred as cosmopolitan and somehow alien to the real people. And yet, We have to remember that in a great deal of the world and an increasing part of the world, broadly defined liberalism has been succeeding and even growing. Liberalism started in sort of the Netherlands and England, and it spread to America and then to more of Western Europe and then to more of Europe and then also uh, to places like Japan and and, uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong um, and and some parts of Latin America and even some parts of Africa. And so somehow people do seem to prefer liberalism as a place to live. You ask anywhere in the world, which way do the immigration flows run? And they run to the more liberal, more capitalist countries from the less liberal, less capitalist countries. So at some level, people do know this and mostly they do reject extremists and so on. The question is why in recent years, when really the world is richer than it's ever been, and it's in a lot of ways more open, women can uh, can achieve and aspire more than they could before, gay people, racial minorities, all of those groups in most of the world have more freedom and dignity and um and being part of the political and economic mainstream than they were before. So why are we seeing in countries like Turkey and Egypt and Hungary and Venezuela and the Philippines and maybe India and maybe even France, why are we seeing this trend toward illiberalism? And I think that's a complicated question and one that we need to be thinking about. For the
0: United States, it has been a little disheartening. You know, years ago, I can remember uh, Joe Kennedy uh junior uh riding around uh promoting venezuelan heating oil uh to to put into people's homes and he seemed to have no problem with uh allying himself in a way with uh somebody like hugo chavez and uh more recently people like donald trump people like tucker carlson have uh at least nodded and and pointed out their admiration for people who have terrible human rights records who are uh, at the at the heads of various countries. I guess it strikes me that maybe a lot of Americans
6: don't really just follow this stuff as closely as you or I do. Maybe there's always been this fascination with some better system. The political scientist Paul Hollander wrote a book called Political Pilgrims and he was talking about Americans and maybe western Europeans too who had swooned over the, the new system in Russia, communism. And then later, when that didn't pan out, uh, they swooned over Mao and then Castro and then eventually Chavez. And there's always a new. Alternative, And it turns out all the others that those were not real socialism or real communism, uh, those were corrupted. So now we have this new thing. And I wish Paul Hollander were alive today to write about the phenomenon of American right wingers going to Hungary to swoon over Viktor Orban, who has essentially corrupted the electoral process there, eliminated the independent judiciary, eliminated the independent media. um, And he rails against George Soros in anti-Semitic terms, and he's, he's cracking down on the LGBT threat. And so, once again, it's like, he he points to scapegoats for everything that is wrong, and he promises that I'm the man on the white horse who can fix it, and Americans ought to be more sensitive to that by now. There are even American conservatives who think Putin is a great defender of Christian civilization. Now, this was mostly they said that before he brutally invaded Ukraine, but still, you could look at Vladimir Putin and think, my God, he's defending Western Christian civilization. Um, Paul Hollander would like to write about that. It seems likely that
0: this kind of thinking, uh, illiberal thinking, both on right and left, has a substantial future in American politics. And it's hard to avoid that conclusion.
6: Well, I hope that won't be the case. I do think a lot of it on the right is wrapped up in the person of Donald Trump. And so that may not last forever. Um, And on the left, uh, a lot of it wrapped up in the aversion to Donald Trump and so might calm down. I do think also there is a growing sense on the center left that the left is going too far, is threatening the economy, is threatening freedom of speech and um and also hurting democratic chances in elections and that combination may cause people on the center left to organize in a way that they haven't and so i certainly hope that we will see not exactly a coalition between reagan conservatives and free speech liberals but at least a pushing back by both of those groups against the extremists on right and left in which case libertarians will see both of those groups as allies at least on specific issues and on a general sense that we would like to be arguing issues within a broad liberal consensus about um, private property markets, civil liberties, and constitutional government. And if, if we had that, the world and the United States would be better off. And I, as I say, I think I see some revival on both sides. David Bowes is a Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute.
0: As we've noted earlier, we're bringing Cato Audio listeners exclusive conversations with scholars, policymakers, and academics on issues you care about. And we want you to be involved in this process. If you have an important question for Liberty that you'd like us to discuss, send it to CatoAudio at Cato.org. And we'll happily credit you with spurring our conversation. Send your well-considered questions to CatoAudio at Cato.org. And we can't wait to hear from you. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.